how would you like to have access to the highest level of knowledge and wisdom that there is? Well, that is on offer to all of us. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2. As you know, we're working our way through Colossians, and we're now into chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may be deluded, that they will not delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to pass on everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. Let this be a life-changing word and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Question, would you like to be better at what you do? Would you like to increase your skill and expertise? Or do you feel like you've plateaued and there's nothing more for you to excel for? Do you feel that way? Well, I can tell you that I, myself, am trying to get better at what I do. I don't feel that I have preached yet the way I aspire to. And I'm open to criticism, help, all the time. I want not only to get it right in what I say, but I want to do my best so that when I stand before God, I can hear from Him, well done. Well, now, in this passage, Paul makes another bold statement showing how fully he believes that Jesus Christ is the God-man, the Creator and Redeemer, by whom all things hold together. And he makes this statement that Christ is the fountainhead of all wisdom and knowledge. Now, there's a difference 
between wisdom and knowledge. There are a lot of people who have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. Wisdom is knowing the next step forward, what to do. Wisdom is getting God's opinion. And so Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, he gets God's opinion, and that's where you want to go if you want wisdom. You get it from Jesus. But not only that, says Paul, he is the fountainhead of all knowledge in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember, God knows everything. There's nothing God does not know. Past, present, future, and he knows the future as perfectly as he knows the present. And so if you want access to knowledge, you have to go through Jesus Christ. He's got it all. And so now we've seen in uh, recent months, uh, learning from the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane, that Jesus, at the right hand of God, wears two crowns. Head of state, head of nations. Head of state, that's Jesus, head of nations. And he has all knowledge. Now, by head of the church, uh, he, this means saving grace. And so what that means is this, that because he is God and he is head of the church, uh, he's the author of saving grace and what we call common grace. Common grace. That's God's goodness to everybody. Now, Jesus knows theology perfectly, but he also has all knowledge. For example, we're talking about uh, astronomy, science, mathematics, physics, uh, anything that would pertain, for example, to uh, physics or anything that pertains to computer science. He's got that. So that if a person is found to be brilliant, let's say, do you know why? Now, common grace is God's goodness to everybody. has nothing to do with whether you're a Christian. You see, Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. And so, common grace. There are those who have unusual intellects. It's not because they're a Christian at all. Uh, Albert Einstein, an IQ, they say, 212. The average is 100. 110 means you're bright. And you think, an IQ like that. Now, he got it from Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't think Einstein was a Christian. Probably not. But this is the thing. I don't know if any of you watched or heard uh, the Wreath Lectures a few days ago. Uh, it was uh, by Lord uh, Sumption. He was a justice of the Supreme Court. And uh, I listened to him. And I marveled at the breadth of knowledge. And he was so articulate. Uh, someone said of him, he's got the brain the size of a planet. And I listened. I thought, wow. But I wondered this. I wondered, is he thankful for that? 
I have no idea whether he is a Christian or professes to be. But I do know this. In Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul said about everybody. And when he says, when I say everybody, you need to know this about atheists, agnostics, whoever they are. Here's what Paul says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been perceived clearly ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made so, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him. Do you want to know what God hates? It is ungrateful brilliance when people have been blessed but they're not thankful this applies to anybody here those present in this place you're above average maybe for all I know you're a genius but are you thankful do you realize where you got that why are you like that it is a gift and God simply wants you to acknowledge that and be thankful for him. You see, we're told, 1 Corinthians 1.26, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I'll tell you something true of 99.99% of all Christians. They are ordinary people. Uh, I know something about you. I'm not meaning to insult you, but you're ordinary. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you are ordinary. <laughs> this is what Paul said. You just look around. This is what he said to the Corinthians. He says, look around. Not many mighty. Didn't say not any. Once in a while, uh, God will raise up an Athanasius, who was the great theologian of Greek Orthodoxy, or in the Western Church, a St. Augustine, or a Thomas Aquinas. These come like every three or four hundred years. A Calvin, a Luther, a Jonathan Edwards. These people are rare, and the church is all the better when God does that. But by and large, it's people like you and me, ordinary people, and we should thank God when he raises up people like this. Well, so, head of the church, head of nations, that's Jesus. But there are also two kinds of knowledge which concerns believers. The first, I would simply call it general knowledge. The other is theological knowledge. Two kinds, general, theological. Uh, why do we go to school? Well, to learn the three R's, the ABCs. Uh, we thank God for teachers. I've been thinking this week over uh, my own background back in Ashland, Kentucky. Kentucky is not known for producing many brilliant people. In fact, uh, you perhaps have heard me say that we had a saying in Kentucky years ago when there were only 
48 states. I'm old enough to remember when there were only 48 states. And uh, we had a slogan in Kentucky, thank God for Arkansas. <laughs> and that is because Kentucky was 47th in educational standards. Thank God for Arkansas. They were at the bottom. Well, that's my background. I didn't have the best of teachers. Uh, and I can remember, too, not only am I from Kentucky, when I was brought up in a denomination called the Church of the Nazarene, they were very strict. Women didn't wear jewelry or makeup, and none of us could go to the movies or to dances. Uh, and I felt this as I grew up because people would say, R.T., he's a Nazarene. And even the students, not only that, would ostracize me, but the teachers. And I could feel it from the teachers. There were those who didn't like you. But there was one, her name was Eliza Cooksey. And she gave me something to live for. And I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the way she saw something in me nobody else did. Perhaps you can recall teachers that did certain things for you. Well, general knowledge, we all need it, but then Paul is mainly talking about theological knowledge because he says, I want you to be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So it's a mystery. It's something hidden but revealed, but even if it's revealed, there's something about it you don't understand everything, and you stand in awe of the truth. Well, now, Paul could make this statement. He said, I'm not with you bodily, but I'm with you in spirit. Now, when he said that, he was talking about an apostolic anointing. Sometimes we'll say to somebody, well, I can't be there, but I'm with you in spirit. And I don't think we literally mean what Paul meant. Paul meant that he could sense by the power of the Spirit just how they were doing spiritually. And he says, you're in good shape. And he's so pleased with them, but here's what he fears. He said, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Think about this. The arguments against the Christian faith will be plausible. The arguments against creation will be plausible. The arguments against infallibility of the Bible, they will be plausible. They've always been. And if you're not careful, you'll give in to what is plausible and rather stand out and be regarded as a fool by your friends Many people cave in. Now, I don't know if you know about the geography of Asia, where Paul was writing. There were three cities pretty close to each other. Colossae, Ephesus, and Laodicea. Well, at the right hand of God, 25 years later, Jesus addresses two of the churches here. Now, Paul had not written a letter to Laodicea at the time, but 
we know that he did write a letter to the Laodiceans. It says so at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, it's lost. Why we don't have his letter to the Laodiceans, you tell me. But in the same way, Jesus, 25 years later at the right hand of God, could have addressed many churches, uh, but of those that I've mentioned, he addressed uh, the Laodiceans and the Ephesians. And when it came to the church of Ephesus, and this is 25 years later, he says, you have left your first love and repent from which you have fallen. Now, that's the church at Ephesus. We haven't gone through Ephesians here, but Ephesians and Colossians are much the same. They're close to each other, and he probably wrote one letter after the other. That's why they are so similar. But when it came to the Laodiceans, he said, you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. And because you're neither cold nor hot, which we want, I wish you were one or the other, he said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let me ask you a question. If you're honest, do you think that you might be a lukewarm Christian? You think that's possible? Remember years ago, there was this uh, uh, hair cream called Brill Cream. And their slogan was, a little dab will do you. And that's many people today. They want just a little dab of religion, but not too much. And that's the church of the Laodiceans. And God wants you red hot for him. If you're not careful, then you will fulfill what Paul is worried about. You see, he knows how crafty the devil is. He knows that the enemy has plausible arguments. And they will make sense. And if you're worried about what people think, you're going to give in to them. And so, 25 years later, Ephesus, they needed to repent. The Laodiceans, they'd become lukewarm. And Paul is worried about the future. And so he points that none of these people have met him personally. He hasn't uh, met the, the Colossians or the Laodiceans. But he's writing to them, and he's warning them, and his prayer for them is that they may be encouraged to be knit together in love, mainly this, that they reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Now, there are two levels of assurance. First level is what we call faith. There's an element of assurance in faith. Because when you transfer the trust that you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you on the cross, you've got assurance that you're saved. Uh, the Puritans, the ancient, uh, or the English Puritans, not so ancient, two, three hundred years ago, uh, they had what they called the practical syllogism by which you can know that you're saved. Used, using Aristotelian logic, major premise, minor premise, followed by a conclusion. So, major premise, all who trust the death of Jesus will be saved. Minor premise, I believe in the death of Jesus. Conclusion, you're saved. And that is the way most people come to assurance. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is the way you know you're saved. You give up any hope in your good works, 
and you say, I've put all of my eggs into one basket, the blood of Jesus. Therefore, you know you are saved. But according to Paul, there is a higher level than that. And he calls it full assurance. It's the Greek word pleroforia. It's used. Hebrews 6.11, full assurance of hope. Uh, Hebrews 10.22, full assurance of faith. When the Holy Spirit, by an immediate and direct operation, causes you to see that you're saved, and it's like a brain bypass. It just comes into your heart, and you know that you're saved. You don't have to reason it. You know. Holy Spirit will do that. It doesn't seem to happen to everybody. Uh, even John Wesley did admit it does to some, whereby you know you're safe. You don't need reasoning to convince you. You just know it. And that's what Paul wants for them. And if your faith level is syllogistic reasoning, that's fine. You know you're saved. But how would you like to have full assurance whereby the Holy Spirit just floods your soul and you know you don't need to reason it. You just know. And God wants that for you because if you come to that, very unlikely that you would give in to plausible arguments. Well, this is the thing. But there are also two levels of understanding. Let me explain what I mean by that. Basic understanding of the Christian faith uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, the writer refers to six elementary principles. Here they are. Repentance from dead works. Faith. Baptisms. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. Now, those are the ABCs of Christian theology. I hope all of you could explain each of those. I hope you can. Repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead. Some of these things are never preached today, and especially eternal judgment. This is elementary, the belief of God's final judgment, heaven and hell. This is elementary. Well, that's the basic level. But then when Paul mentions full assurance, he's talking about understanding the knowledge of God's mystery so that what you believe, you know you've got it right by this immediate witness of the Spirit. And uh, we saw a few weeks ago, remember? The theology of heaven. You want to know you got it right? Find out what do they believe in heaven? What do the departed saints, the sainted dead, what do they believe? What do the angels believe? That's when you know you've got it right. Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he will know the doctrine. Well, you may say, but R.T., you're just talking about theological knowledge. Uh, I'm a solicitor. I'm a physician. I'm an accountant. I'm a nurse. I'm a secretary. I need help in my job. And this is the thing I want you to see. 
the degree to which you put theological knowledge first will be the degree to which it spills over into what you do and will make you better at what you do. My father's favorite verse was Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Now, Jesus told this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking in the Sermon on the Mount about food, shelter, clothing. He says, don't worry about food, shelter, clothing, because if you seek first the kingdom of God, the food, shelter, and clothing, it's part of the package. Take care of itself. The problem we have today, I'm afraid, all over, whether it's in America, in Britain, in the Far East, where the emphasis is on prosperity, it, it becomes alien to the Christian faith. Emphasis on getting a better job, better car, better home, and that God wants you rich. Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God. These things will be given to you, and he will determine what you can be trusted with. So also, if you say, I want to do better at my job, and you think, well, I need to take a course. That won't hurt you. That's fine. My dad was not a preacher. He was a layman. He worked for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. At an ordinary job, he was a rate clerk, Clark. And because he was a Christian, he was actually persecuted and passed over a job, but he should have been the next one to be made manager. But they were so biased against him that he was passed over. But my dad prayed 30 minutes every day before he went to work. My first memory of my father was to see him on his knees every day. He wasn't a preacher. He prayed more than most preachers do. But you know what? He didn't complain. He just kept his eyes on Jesus. And the day came when he was not only made manager, but zone manager, and he became above those that had been above him. And his day came. And so will yours. And this is the thing. Seek first the kingdom of God because your knowledge is going to come from God. You want to get on his good side. Get to know him. You see, what has been hidden will be revealed. And it comes to those who set their affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And so the importance of full assurance of understanding let me tell you why it's so important. First of all, it will enable you to recognize false teaching as soon as you hear it. The problem with so many, I hope not with you, but with so many, they're carried about by every wind of doctrine. They believe the last book they read. They listen to a sermon, oh, that's what I believe. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. But when you come into this full assurance of understanding, you're able immediately to recognize what's heretical. You can spot it. You see it. It's instinct. The Holy Spirit will help you to see that. But not only 
enabling you to come into the ability to spot heresy. But God will exalt you. In those days when I was back in Ashland, Kentucky, I had a prayer life before I went to school. was from the time I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I prayed 15 minutes and read my Bible every morning and again that evening. And I knew how teachers didn't like me. But you know, there was this one, Eliza Cooksey. She gave me something I'd never dreamed of. She made me a member of the debating team back in Ashland High School. And I learned to debate and that was my first time to understand what it is to speak publicly. It was preparation for what I do today. And God has a way, you see. He will find you. He knows what your weakness is. He knows what your strength is. And you say, but R.T., I don't have any gift at all. I don't know how God could ever use me. I can tell you, there's something you can do that nobody else can do as well. And that will be discovered when you make God first in your life. God will find you. Take, for example, Joseph, son of Jacob. You know what his gift was? Having dreams and prophetic dreams. He had a gift of interpreting a dream. Uh, I think of somebody like that. <laughs> Imagine if Joseph were here today. Uh, he comes into Notting Hill, and uh, he goes to an employment agency. And uh, he says, I, I want a job. And they say, okay, uh, have a seat. Uh, what is your name? Uh, Joseph. J-O-S-E-P-H in English. I don't know what it would have been in Hebrew or whatever language it was that they spoke in that day. Uh, all right, Joseph, uh, what do you do? He says, dream. <laughs> dream? Right. Oh, oh, I interpret dreams. Really? Wow. Right, interpret dreams. Thank you very much. We'll be in touch with you. <laughs> but the day came when the one thing Joseph was good at was discovered. He's put in prison on a false charge, but another prisoner has a dream. In fact, two prisoners. And Joseph interprets both dreams exactly and told exactly what would happen. And then when the one man got his job back, as Joseph said he would, the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh has a dream. And he calls in his astrologers and magicians and says, interpret my dream. And none of them could. And the cupbearer to the king, overhearing the conversation, he said, oh, I remember my faults. There is a Hebrew in prison who interpreted my dream and I have a feeling I, I should have told you about him sooner. And by the way, can you imagine how Egyptians felt toward a Hebrew 
I'm telling you, they had nothing whatever to do with them. And yet, when the Pharaoh was told there's a Hebrew who can interpret dreams, he says, get him. Maybe you feel that you have been classified or set to one side or you have a past. By the way, Joseph was in prison because he was accused of raping somebody. But, but it didn't matter now. If he can interpret my dream, I want to talk to him. And if you have a gift that God has given you and you're living for the Lord, you may say, well, he can never use me now because of my past, because of the color of my skin or my accent. Uh, I'm from Kentucky or I'm from, God forbid, Scotland. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't matter. And so Joseph now goes before the Pharaoh and overnight Joseph is made prime minister of Egypt. Listen, what is on offer is that you come to full assurance of understanding and God will give you wisdom where you know things no one else knows, knowledge, and he will use you where you are with that gift. Listen to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. He sees you when you're alone with him. He sees you when you're reading your Bible. He sees you when you cry out to him day after day after day. And the God who has inspired you to pray like that, he knows where you are. He will find you. And your day will come.